I entitled the lesson tonight, Self-Denying Love. Um, Song of Solomon is God's wisdom about intimacy, both for the married and the unmarried. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of wisdom and love. Read in the light of Jesus, the song makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 In chapter 3, Courtney defined what intimacy really is because of our broken world and what it really should be. And in chapter 4, Becky taught how the bridegroom has extravagant, captivating love for his bride and rejoices over her. <clears throat> Since chapter 1, the physical aspects of these two lovers results in personal ecstasy that makes the pain of separation unbearable. In this passage, um, 5.2-6.3, the cycle of seeking and finding continues to be evident. And also, similar to chapter 3, the bride is speaking about her lover, not to him. The characters are the bride, the beloved, the daughters of Jerusalem, and the watchman. But we have to remember that this is poetic fiction, and it is permissible to take license and embellish. Something I haven't understood very well until recently, because <laughs> I'm not strong on poetic. <laughs> but Jesus is the source of the marital union with its passionate intimacy, beauty, and love. And Ephesians 5.32 says, This mystery of marriage is profound, and I, Paul, am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I feel that this passage in many places is descriptive of the characteristics of Jesus. This poem reveals the beauty of his love, the radiance of his splendor, his purity, kindness, divine superiority. And I hope that you feel it too as we go through. So the theme tonight is repentance and remembrance of our first love bring joyful reconciliation. And there's three different sections. I will start with verses 2 through 8, which I entitled, um, Change of Heart, a Repentance. <clears throat> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Shouldn't have done double-sided, I guess. Um, Song of Solomon 5.2 is really very different from the end of our passage, 6.3. Everything in the couple's relationship has been going beautifully. They adore each other. She feels safe and loved by him, and he is intoxicated with her beauty, intimacy, and love. But in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we see a different tone, a brief reprieve from relational paradise. The bride is asleep or in that drowsy state when she hears her beloved knocking. The word knocking in the Hebrew means to beat or strike severely. He may be pounding because he has expectations of lovemaking and is anxious. Next, he uses an imperative or command as he says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. It seems to me that her beloved may have used a softer approach with the tone of his voice to make it more of a request than a demand. Because in the same sentence, he utters those words of endearment, reminding him or reminding her who she is to him. It's apparently nighttime, 
and he lets her know that his head has become wet with dew as he made his way to her. She surmises that he needs her, but surprisingly, she's not open to him right away. She makes excuses, having already uh, undressed and not wanting to get up and soil her feet. We don't know the reason for this response to him here, but we can conjure up all kinds of reasons, probably, based on our own experiences. <laughs> Perhaps the initial pounding turned her off. Or it is an inconvenient time. She's so comfortable and relaxed. They may have had a spat, whatever. We don't know. But I first thought about the little foxes in Chapter 2 that Jan talked about um, that can spoil the vineyards and blossom. Those, of course, are external stressors that can cause us to be indifferent or irritated with our spouses. Because she hesitates, he puts his hand to the latch of the door and then perhaps changes his mind because in verse 6 he's gone. He left. He will not force his way in. She says in verse 6, My soul failed me when he spoke. The gentle persistence in his voice and his spoken distress at being wet has made her think again about her beloved, and when he put his hand to the latch, her heart was thrilled. She rises to open to him. When she opens the door, she realizes her beloved has turned and gone. The New Bible Commentary says there is a moving touch in verse 4, which reflects the heart of her beloved. There is no anger or sulking on his part, only deep disappointment. He leaves, but not before covering the door handle with myrrh, a sign of his continued love, fragrant love for her. Her fingers are dripping with it. She says her soul, her entire being, has failed or melted away when he spoke, and now it's too late. His voice, not the knocking or the hand to latch, but it was his voice that really made her realize how deeply she still loved him, and now she regrets her hesitation. She is desperate. She's urgently searching and calling for him, and she risks her life and even her reputation by going out into the city at night by herself in search of him. She's not successful in her search. And meanwhile, the watchmen in the city find her and possibly mistake her for an indecent woman. They beat her, wound her, take away her veil. Um, it's kind of interesting to know that there are seven different words in the Hebrew for the word veil. And this one means shawl or large covering. Whereas in chapter 4, we saw a veil a couple of times that just covered her eyes and cheeks. The watchman in chapter 3 had no voice or actions, but here it's a different story. In, this commentary, in his commentary, Matthew Henry mentions that the watchman's actions are possible just rebukes for her folly. Well, we can't be sure of this, but we do know that our actions have consequences. The point of this section is the fact that the bride has been focused on herself and not on her lover. His voice and his desire for her has made her realize that and regret it. She desires the intimacy and the passion that they've had. 
Repentance is the key to resolve this. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So in verse 8, the bride solemnly urges the young woman to help her find her husband and tell him that she is sick or weak with love for him. Her love for him has been renewed. She really does still love him. So let's look at this scene with spiritual eyes for a moment. <clears throat> There's a lesson for all of us in our relationship with our spouses and with Christ. It's easy for husbands and wives to um, become complacent, take things for granted in our marriage. And because we are sinners, we tend to let little things build up and then feel sorry for ourselves. Satan takes an advantage. He is subtle and a liar, the great deceiver. We must pray that we will recognize Satan's voice and resist his temptations. Matthew Henry comments also, Christ knocks on our hearts by his word and spirit. By, I should say, his voice and his spirit. Uh, by afflictions and our own consciences. And he calls sinners into covenant with him, but saints into communion with him. The mystery of marriage displays the gospel of grace <clears throat> as it mirrors Christ and his church. We need to give grace to our spouses and others in a relationship with that's um, called repentance and forgiveness. Since marriage was always intended to point to Christ, we can remind ourselves of 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. And Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. When we repent of our sin, and selfishness and submit to our spouses, he cleanses us and makes us more like him. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 Our faithful and loving Lord Jesus desires an intimate relationship with us, but sadly we often focus on ourselves, what we think we need or deserve. The Song of Solomon is showing you and I who Jesus is and the intimate love that Christ has for us. <clears throat> Section 2 is verses 9 through 16, and this is really, remember, he whom my soul loves. We saw that phrase, he whom my soul loves, in chapter 1, verse 7. Since in verse 8, the bride has given the daughters of Jerusalem this charter to find her beloved, in verse 9, they desire to know why she is so intent on finding him. They ask twice, what is your beloved more than another beloved? What well, makes him so special? <laughs> As the bride describes her beloved intimately in verses 10 through 16, she moves from head to toe in an orderly fashion. Other than the symbolic bodily descriptions of Jesus in Revelation, this is the only place in the Bible that describes a man's body. This section is deliciously poetic of the man that she loves and admires so much. She extols his beauty, not just physical, but his character as well. She wants us to feel what she feels for him. 
So first, starting with verse 10, she's really talking about his complexion. Uh, she says, where is verse 10? My beloved is radiant and ruddy. He is shining with dazzling splendor, with the brightness of his character in his face. He is outstanding and incomparable because he is distinguished among 10,000. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there are two notable allusions to other places in Scripture. Uh, Becky mentioned last week, young David in 1 Samuel 16, 12, when he's called from the field um, by Samuel to be anointed, uh, is described as ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome. And ruddy is just that redness, that um, glow um, and redness and um, that's common in the complexion of a lot of people. When babies are first born, newborns are ruddy, we call them, when they're bright red. In Revelation 1.16, Jesus' face was like sun shining in full strength. So just a comparison here between what she describes on her beloved and some things about Jesus that are similar. And I tried to do this all throughout. His head is the finest, purest gold with jet black, wavy hair. He has an imperial, even a godlike visage. The only comparison I found in scripture to a head of gold is in Daniel 2, when King Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of an image whose head was of fine gold. Daniel interpreted the dream for him, telling him, You, O king, the king of kings, because the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and rule over the children of men, the beasts of the field and birds of the heaven, you are that head of gold. In Revelation 19, 16, Jesus Christ is the king of kings. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. He's been given power and authority over all things. <clears throat> and now she's focusing more on the face, specifically the eyes, the cheeks, and the lips. The eyes, she says, are like doves, and we've heard this before. So they speak to us of innocence or purity and passionate kindness. <clears throat> His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs, this probably refers to his beard, which has um, anointing oil on it, scented anointing or perfumed oil. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Um, lips have been already associated with lilies in a couple of other places, and there are many varieties of lilies. Probably here she could be referring to the red ones um, that are healthy looking. And she says the lips and mouth or his kisses, are moist and sweet. So in other words, his whole face, his cheeks, his lips, and his mouth is fragrant. The fragrance of Jesus is his suffering and death and burial. The myrrh is mentioned a couple of times already. <clears throat> I had always been taught that myrrh was a symbol of Jesus' death, 
And we know that the wise men in, Ch in Matthew came to visit Jesus um, and brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and worshiped Jesus for who he was, a Savior who came to die. In John 19, Nicodemus brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes when assisting with Jesus' burial. His body was bound in linen cloths with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Next, she goes on to his arms. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. Other translations use hands and fingers in place of the arms. The hands are strong and bedecked with jewels, as is his body, which is also polished ivory, probably referring to color and perhaps muscular fitness, hardness, the six-pack. <laughs> he sparkles with luster. In other words, he's, he has jewels on his uh, everywhere. His legs are alabaster columns. Alabaster is a white-colored translucent stone, similar to marble, that can be molded or carved into precise shapes. We sing about um, Alabaster City's gleam in America the Beautiful. The bride is talking about the color and shape of his legs. The legs are set on bases of gold, the feet. Note that the head, arms, and feet are all gold. Um, Commentator Doug O'Donnell says, From top to bottom, her beloved is magnificent, pure, costly, divine, like gold. He is superior to all others. That's the point of the poem. Thus, to answer the question in verse 9, she replies that her guy, this godlike statue, her larger-than-life lover, is worth going after and risking her life to seek find and bring back to bed. End of quote. <laughs> uh, in verse 15, she continues with his overall appearance. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Cedars are an evergreen, very tall, strong, and majestic. <clears throat> and just as a side note, on Mount Lebanon today, there are 400 cedar trees that are 2,000 years old. Wow. Amazing. Um, cedars are referenced 70 times in the Bible. They are a symbol of spiritual growth and righteousness. Overall, the beloved stature is tall, strong, and handsome. <clears throat> he is altogether desirable or lovely. Not only is he her lover, but also her BFF best friend forever. <laughs> she has reminded herself of he whom my soul loves. Verse 16 reminds me of a chorus that I love, and I never realized it came from this verse before, um, but it's called Altogether Lovely. I, I think the author must have had this verse in mind when he wrote it. I'll just tell you the words. I'm not going to sing them. <clears throat> Altogether Lovely, he is altogether lovely, and the fairest of ten thousand, this wonderful friend divine. He gave himself to save me, now he lives in heaven to keep me. He is altogether lovely, is this wonderful Savior of mine.
There's other variations with that, other things they say. Are there? Mm -hmm. I don't know them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it might be a different song. The know. Alpha and Omega, Omega, it says, and then the beginning and the end. Okay. All right. Okay. The word remember is in the Bible 234 times. We are told to remember. <laughs> Moses told the Israelites to remember this day, which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, by the strong hand of the Lord. That's in Exodus 13. In Exodus 20, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And Deuteronomy tells the people, you shall remember the Lord your God. God is always, has and always will remember his covenant with us. And Isaiah 43 says, I will not remember your sins. So we need to remember who our Savior is. Remember his mercy, his faithfulness, and steadfast love to you. Remember his suffering and dying for you. Remember, he is holy and just. Now, the last section is talking about the couple's reunion or reconciliation, and it's the first three verses of chapter 6. <clears throat> now, the ladies of Jerusalem are convinced that he is most worthy of their time and effort to search for, but ask, where is he? But in verse 2, suddenly, he's with her. He's come to his garden, that private place of retirement, to browse and gather lilies. This is a reference to kissing or sexual intimacy or both. All is as it was before. So what is really going on in the story? Did she find him? Did he find her? Did they ever leave each other's presence? Was this all a bad dream? We don't know. <laughs> and O'Donnell says it really doesn't matter because the poetic point is clear. The chasm of separateness has been filled emotionally and physically as a result of reconciliation. <clears throat> In chapter 216, we see the refrain, My beloved is mine, and I am his. She put herself first in that refrain in chapter 2, but not in our passage. It's inverted. They made their vows to one another for life, and they will continue to honor them. They've weathered the storm. So now the bride inverts the previous one, and in 6.3 we read, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. She's entirely devoted to him here. There are times when my devotion slumbers, when I hear his knock on my heart's door and the Spirit's voice saying, Open your heart to deeper to me, my pure dove. I don't always respond right away. I am usually too busy with many good things, not dwelling in the Word, not taking the time to commune with him and listen to the still, quiet voice that calls me to intimacy. How grieved his heart must be when he offers his delights to me, and I can't be bothered. Mm. In Revelation 2, verses 3 and 4, John was told to write to the church in Ephesus these words. 
This is Jesus talking. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. The Lord uses a variety of circumstances or trials and people to remind us and call us to himself. He uses us as Christian brothers and sisters to encourage, pray for, and or rebuke his children. Because Jesus shed his blood on our behalf and, his right, and of his righteousness, because of Jesus shed blood on our behalf and his righteousness, we are his sister, his love, his dove, his perfect one. He reaches into us to unlock our hearts and ask us to lay aside our self-righteousness and put him first. When we repent and surrender to him, we can begin to sense his fragrance of suffering love. John chapter 15 tells us, as Christ's disciples, he is the true vine, and we are the branches. We are to abide in him, a union of branches divine. In Christ, our calling is to dwell to marinate, to go deeper still into Jesus. Apart from him, we can do nothing and will bear no fruit. But in him, his joy will be in us and our joy will be full.